We are in the chapter 15, The Descent of the Gods. We got up to, through section 4 and starting with section 5. We, last week we uh, uh, just had that bit where uh, Mark was in the ob objectivity room being forced to defile a crucifix by Frost and he decided that it's all bloody nonsense and I'm damned if I'll do any such thing. And that's when the crowd walks in, Wither, Merlin, the Tramp, um, and uh, that's where we left off. In the great drawing room at Belbury, a singularly uncomfortable party was by now assembled. Horace Jules, director of, me, of the NICE, had arrived about half an hour before. They had shown him to the deputy director's study, but the deputy director was not there. Then they had shown him to his own rooms and hoped that he would take a long time to settle again. He took a very short time. In five minutes he was downstairs again and on, his ha on their hands and was still much too early for anyone to go and dress. He was now standing with his back to the fire drinking a glass of sherry and the principal members of the institute were standing around him. Conversation was hanging fire. Conversation with Mr. Jules was always difficult because he insisted on regarding himself not as a figurehead, but as the real director of the Institute, and even as the source of most of its ideas. And since, in fact, any science he knew had, that he knew was taught that was taught him at the University of London over fifty years ago, and any philosophy he knew had been acquired from writers like Haeckel and Joseph McCabe and Winwood Reed. It was not, in fact, possible to talk to him about most of the things the Institute was really doing. <coughs> One was always engaged in inventing answers to questions which were actually meaningless and expressing enthusiasm for ideas which were out of date and had been crude even in their prime. That was why the absence of the deputy director in such interviews was so disastrous, for Wither alone was master of a conversational style that exactly suited Jules. Jules was a cockney. He was a very little man whose legs were so short that he had unkindly been compared with a duck. He had a turned-up nose and a face in which some original bonhomie had been much interfered with by years of good living and conceit. His novels had first raised him to fame and affluence. Later, as editor of the weekly called We Want to Know, he had become such a power in the country that his name was really necessary to the NICE. And as I said to the Archbishop, observed Jules, you may not know, my lord, said I, that modern research shows the temple at Jerusalem to have been about the size of an English village church. God, said Feverstone to himself, where he stood silent on the fringes of the group. Have a little more sherry, director, said Miss Hardcastle. Well, I don't mind if I do, said Jules. It's not at all a bad sherry, though I think I could tell you of a place where you could get something better. And how are you getting on, Miss Hardcastle, with your reforms to, of our penal system? Making real headway, she replied. I think some modification to the Politoff method. What I always say, remarked Jules, interrupting her is, why not treat crime like any other disease? I have no use for punishment. What you want to do is put the man on the right lines, give him a fresh start, give him an interest in life. It's all perfectly simple if you look at it from that point of view. I dare say you've been reading a little address I gave on the subject at Northampton. 
I agreed with you, said Miss Hardcastle. <laughs> that's right, said Jules. I tell you who didn't, though, old Higgist. And, by the by, that's a queer business. You never caught the murderer, did you? Well, but though I'm sorry for the old chap, I never did quite see eye to eye with him. The very last time I met him, one or two of us were talking about juvenile offenders, and do you know what he said? He said, the trouble with these courts for young criminals nowadays is that they're always binding them over when they ought to be bending them over. Not bad, was it? Still, as Wither said, and by the by, where is Wither? I think he should be here any moment now, said Miss Hardcastle. I can't imagine why he's not. I think, Phil, said Philostrato, he have a breakdown with his car. He will be very desolated, Mr. Director, not to have given you the welcome. Oh, he didn't bother about that, said Jules. I never was one for any formality, though I <laughs> did think he'd be here when I arrived. You're looking very well, Philostrato. I'm following your work with great interest. I look upon you as one of the makers of mankind. Yes, yes, said Philostrato. That is the real business. Already we begin. I try to help you all I can on the non-technical side, said Jules. It's a battle I've been fighting for years, the whole question of our sex life. What I always say is that once you get the whole thing out in the open, you don't have any more trouble. It's all this Victorian secrecy which does the harm. Make a mystery of it. I want every boy and girl in the country... God, said Feverstone to himself. Forgive me, said Philostrato, who, being a foreigner, had not yet despaired of trying to enlighten Jules. But that is not precisely the point. Now I know what you're going to say, interrupted Jules, laying a fat forefinger on the professor's sleeve. And I dare say you don't read my little, my little paper. But believe me, if you looked up the first number of last month, you'll find a modest little editorial, which a chap like you might overlook because it doesn't use any technical terms. But I ask you just to read it, and see if it doesn't put the whole thing in a nutshell. And in a way that the man on the street can understand. At this moment, the clock struck a quarter. I say, asked Jules, what time is this dinner at? He liked banquets, and especially banquets at which he had to speak. He also disliked to be kept waiting. At quarter to eight, said Miss Hardcastle. You know, said Jules, this fellow Wither really ought to be here. I mean to say, I'm not particular, but I don't mind telling you between you and me that I'm a bit hurt. It isn't the kind of thing a chap expects, is it? I hope there's nothing gone wrong with him, said Miss Hardcastle. You'd hardly have thought he had gone out anywhere, not on a day like this, said Jules. Echo, said Philostrato, someone come. It was indeed Wither who entered the room, followed by a company whom Jules had not expected to see, and Wither's face had a certainly good reason to look even more chaotic than usual. He had been bustled round his own institute as if he were kind of a footman. He had not even been allowed to have supplies of blood and air turned on for the head when they made him take them into the head's room. And Merlin, in quotes, if it was Merlin, had ignored it. Worst of all, it had gradually become clear to him that this intolerable incubus and his interpreter fully intended to be present at dinner. No one could be more keenly aware than Wither of the absurdity of introducing to Jules a shabby old priest who couldn't speak English in charge of what looked like a somnambulist chimpanzee dressed up as a doctor of philosophy. To tell Jules the real explanation, even if he knew which was the real explanation, was out of the question, for Jules was a simple man to whom the word medieval meant only savage, and in whom the word magic roused memories of the golden bough. It was a minor nuisance that ever since their visit to the objective room he had been compelled to have both frost and static in attendance. Nor did it mend matters that as they approached Jules and all eyes were fixed upon them, the pseudo-Merlin collapsed into a chair, muttering, and closed his eyes. 
My dear director began with her, a little out of breath. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. I hope your comfort has been in everywhere, at every way attended to. It has been most unfortunate that I was called away at the very moment when I was expecting your arrival. A remarkable coincidence, another very distinguished person has joined us at the very same moment. A foreigner, oh, interrupted Jules in a slightly rasping voice, who's he? Allow me, said Withers, stepping a little to one side. Do you mean that? said Jules. The supposed Merlin sat with his arms hanging down on each side of the chair, his eyes closed, his head on one side, and a weak smile on his face. Is he drunk or ill? And who is he, anyway? He is, as I was observing, a foreigner, began with her. Well, that doesn't make him go to sleep the moment he is introduced to me, does it? Hush, said Wither, drawing Jules a little out of the group and lowering his voice. There are circumstances. It would be very difficult to go into it here. I have been taken by surprise and would, if you had not been here already, have consulted you at the first possible moment. Our distinguished guest has just undertaken a very long journey and has, I admit, certain eccentricities and... But who is he? persisted Jules. His name is, er, Ambrosius. Dr. Ambrosius, you know. Never heard of him, snapped Jules. At another time, he might not have made this admission, but the whole evening was turning out differently from his expectations, and he was losing his temper. Very few of us have heard of him yet, said Wither, but everyone will have heard of him soon. That is why, without in the least. And who's that? asked Jules, indicating the real Merlin. He looks as if he were enjoying himself. Oh, that's merely Dr. Ambrosius's interpreter. Interpreter? Can't he talk English? Unfortunately not. He lives in rather in a world of his own. <coughs> and can't you get anyone except a priest to ask for him? I don't like the look of that fellow. I don't want that sort of thing here at all. Hello, and who are you? The last question was addressed to Strake, who had, at this moment, thrust his way up to the director. Mr. Jules, he said, fixing the latter with a prophetic eye. I am the bearer of a message to you, which you must hear. I shut up, said Frost to Strake. <coughs> really, Mr. Strake, really, said Wither. Between them, they shouldered him aside. Now look here, Mr. Wither, said Jules. I tell you straight, I'm very far from satisfied. Here's another parson. I don't remember the name of any such person coming before me, and it wouldn't have got past me if it had done. See? You and I'll have a very serious conversation. It seems to me that you're making appointments behind my back and turning the place into a kind of seminary. And that's a thing I won't stand, nor will the British people. I know, I know, said Wither. I understand your feelings exactly. You can rely on complete sympathy. I'm eager and waiting to explain the situation to you. In the meantime, perhaps, as Dr. Ambrosia seems slightly overcome and the dressing bell has just sounded, oh, I beg your pardon, this is Dr. Ambrosius. The tramp, to whom the real magician had recently turned, was now risen from his chair and approaching. Jules held out his hand sulkily. The other, looking over Jules' shoulder and grinning in an inexplicable fashion, seized it and shook it, as if absent-mindedly, some ten or fifteen times. His breath, Judas, Jules noticed, was strong and his grip horny. He was not liking Dr. Ambrosius, and he disliked even more the massive form of the interpreter towering over them both. Chapter 16, Banquet at Belbury it was with great pleasure that Mark found himself once more dressing for a dinner and what seemed likely to be an excellent dinner. He got a seat with Philostrato on his right and a rather inconspicuous newcomer on his left. Even Philostrato seemed human and friendly compared with the two initiates, and, and to the newcomer his heart positively warmed. 
He noticed with surprise that the tramp sat at the high table between Jules and Wither, but did not often look in that direction, for the tramp, catching his eye, had imprudently raised his glass and winked at him. The strange priest stood patiently behind the tramp's chair. For the rest, nothing of importance happened until the king's health had been drunk and Jules rose to make his speech. For the first few minutes, anyone glancing down the long tables would have seen what we always see on such occasions. There were the placid faces of elderly bon viveurs whom, for whom food and wine had placed in a contentment which no amount of speeches could violate. There were the patient faces of responsible but serious diners who had had long since learned how to pursue their own thoughts while attending to the speech just enough to respond wherever a laugh or a low rumble of serious assent was obligatory. There was the usual fidgety expression on the faces of young men unappreciative of port and hungry for tobacco. There was bright, over-elaborate attention on the powdered faces of women who knew their duty to society. But if you have gone on looking down the tables, you would presently have seen a change. You would have seen face after face look up and turn in the direction of the speaker. You would have seen first curiosity, then fixed attention, then incredulity. Finally, you would have noticed that the room was utterly silent, without a cough or a creak, that every eye was fixed on jewels, and soon every mouth opened in something between fascination and horror. To different members of the audience, the change came differently. To Frost, it began at the moment when he heard Jules end a sentence with the words, quote, as gross an anachronism as to trust to cavalry for salvation in modern war. Cavalry, thought Frost almost aloud. Why couldn't the fool mind what he was saying? The blunder irritated him extremely. Perhaps, but, hello, what was this? Had his hearing gone wrong? For Jules seemed to be saying that the future density of mankind depended on the implosion of the horses of nature. He's drunk, thought Frost. Then crystal clear in articulation beyond all impossibility of mistake came, quote, the madrigore of virtuous must be Talthbianized. Talthbianized, whatever it is. Talthibianized. Wither was slower to notice what was happening. He had never expected the speech to have any meaning as a whole, and for a long time the familiar catchwords rolled on in a manner which did not disturb the expectation of his ear. He thought indeed that Jules was say, sailing very near the wind, that a very small false step would deprive both the speaker and the audience of the power even to pretend that he was saying anything in particular. But as long as that border was not crossed, he rather admired the speech. It was in his own mind. Then he thought, come, that's going too far. Even they must see that you can't talk about accepting the challenge of the past by throwing down the gauntlet of the future. He looked cautiously down the room. All was well, but it wouldn't be if Jules didn't sit down pretty soon. In that last sentence, there were surely words he didn't know. What the deuce did he mean by a holobate? He looked down the room again. They were attending too much, always a bad sign. Then came the sentence, the surrogates, SM planted in a continual of porous variations. Mark did not at first attend to the speech at all. He had plenty of other things to think of. The appearance of this spouting popinjay at the very crisis of his own history was a mere interruption. He was too endangered, and yet also, in some precarious way, too happy to bother about jewels. Once or twice some phrase caught his ear and made him want to smile. 
What first woke him to the real situation was the behavior of those who sat near him. He was aware of their increasing stillness. He noticed that everyone except himself had begun to attend. He looked up and saw their faces, and then first he really listened. We shall not, Jules was saying, we shall not, till we can secure the erubation of all postutinary postundiary intidems. Inatems, excuse me. Well, that helps yeah. a lot. Thank you. Little as he cared for jewels, a sudden shock of alarm pierced him. He looked round again. Obviously, it, only, it was not only he who was mad, they had all heard the gibberish, except possibly the tramp, who looked as solemn as a judge. He had never heard a speech from one of these real toffs before, and he would have been disappointed if he could understand it. Nor had he ever before drunk vintage port, and though he did not much like the taste, he had been working away like a man. <laughs> Wither had not forgotten for a moment that there were reporters present. That in itself did not matter much. If anything unsuitable appeared in tomorrow's paper, it would be child's play for him to say that the reporters were drunk or mad and break them. On the other hand, he might let the story pass. Jules was in many respects a nuisance, and this might be as good an opportunity as any other for ending his career. But this was not the immediate question. Wither was wondering whether he should wait till Jules sat down or whether he should rise to interrupt him with a few judicious words. He did not want a scene. It would be better if Jules sat down of his own accord. At the same time, there was by now an atmosphere in that crowded room which warned Wither not to delay too long. Glancing down at the second hand of his watch, he decided to wait two minutes more. Almost as he did so, he knew he had misjudged it. An intolerable falsetto laugh rang out from the bottom of the table and would not stop. Some fool of a woman had got hysterics. Immediately, Wither touched Jules on the arm, signed for him with a nod, and rose. Eh? Blotcher Boldu? muttered Jules. But Wither, laying his hand on the little man's shoulder quietly, but with all his weight, forced him down into a sitting position. Then Wither cleared his throat. He knew how to do that, so that every eye in the room turned immediately to look at him. The woman stopped screaming. People who had been sitting dead still in strained positions moved and relaxed. Wither looked down the room for a second or two in silence, feeling his grip on the audience. He saw that he already had them in his hand. There would be no more hysterics. Then he began to speak. They ought to have all looked more and more comfortable as he proceeded, and there ought to soon have been murmurs of grave regret for the tragedy which they just witnessed. That was what Wither expected. What he actually saw bewildered him. The same too attentive silence which had prevailed during Jules's speech had returned. Bright and unblinking eyes and open mouths greeted him in every direction. The woman began to laugh again. No, this time it was two women. Cosser. After one frightened glance, jumped up, overturning his chair, and bolted from the room. The deputy director could not understand this, for to him his own voice seemed to be uttering the speech he had resolved to make, but the audience heard him saying, Tidies and Fugelman, I shield for that we all err most steeply rebut the defensible, though I trust lavatory. Aspasia, which gleams to have selected our redeemed inspector thus deceiving, it would, ah, be shark, very shark, from anyone's debenture. The woman who had laughed rose hastily from her chair. The man seated next to her heard her murmur in his ear, Voodwilloo. He took in the meaningless syllables and her unnatural expression at one moment. Both, for some reason, infuriated him. 
He rose to help her to move back her chair with one of those gestures of savage politeness which often in modern society serve instead of blows. He wrenched the chair, in fact, out of her hand. She screamed, tripped on a ruck in the carpet, and fell. The man on the other side of her saw her fall and saw the first man's expression of fury. "'What are you, Blamit?' he roared, leaning towards him with a threatening movement. Four or five people in that part of the room were now up. They were shouting. At the same time, there was movement elsewhere. Several of the younger men were making for the door. "'Bundleman, Bundleman,' said Wither, sternly in a much louder voice. He had often before, merely by raising his voice and speaking one authoritative word, reduced troublesome meetings to order. But this time he was not even heard. At least twenty people present were, at that very moment, attempting to do the same thing. To each of them it seemed plain that things were just at that stage, when a word or so of plain sense, spoken in a new voice, would restore the whole room to sanity. One thought of a sharp word, one of a joke, some, one of something very quiet and telling. As a result, fresh gibberish out of a great variety of tones rang out from several places at once. Frost was the only one of the leaders who attempted to say nothing. Instead, he had penciled a few words on a slip of paper, beckoned to a servant, and made him understand by signs that it was to be given to Miss Hardcastle. By the time the message was put into her hands, the clamor was universal. To Mark, it sounded like the noise of a crowded restaurant in a foreign country. <coughs> Miss Hardcastle smoothed out the paper and stooped her head to read. The message ran, Blunt frippers intently pointed to Belroyd. Purgent. Cost. She crumpled it in her hand. Miss Hardcastle had known before she got the message that she was three parts drunk. She had expected and intended to be so. She knew that later on in the evening she would go down to the cells and do things. There was a new prisoner there, a little fluffy girl of the kind the fairy enjoyed with whom she could pass an agreeable hour. The tumult of gibberish did not alarm her. She found it exciting. Apparently, Frost wanted her to take some action. She decided that she would. She rose and walked the whole length of the room to the door, locked it, put the key in her pocket, then turned to survey the company. She noticed for the first time that neither the supposed Merlin nor the Basque priest were anywhere to be seen. Wither and Jules, both on their feet, were struggling with each other. She set out towards them. So many people had now risen that it took her a long time to reach them. All semblance of a dinner party had disappeared. It was more like the scene at London Terminus on a bank holiday. Everyone was trying to restore order, but everyone was unintelligible, and everyone, in the effort to be understood, was talking louder and louder. She shouted several times herself. She even fought a good deal before she reached her goal. There came an ear-splitting noise, and after that, at last, a few seconds of dead silence. Mark noticed first that Jules had been killed, only secondly that Miss Hardcastle had shot him. After that, it was difficult to be sure what happened. The stampede and the shouting may have concealed a dozen reasonable plans for disarming the murderess, but it was impossible to concert them. Nothing came of them but kicking, struggling, leaping on tables and under tables, pressing on, pulling back, screams, breaking of glass. She fired again and again. It was the smell more than anything else which recalled the scene to Mark in later life, the smell of the shooting mixed with the sticky compound smell of blood and port and Madeira. Suddenly the confusion of cries ran all together into one thin long noise of terror. Everyone had become more frightened. Something had darted very quickly across the floor between the two long tables and disappeared under one of them. 
Perhaps half the people present had not seen what it was, had only caught a gleam of black and tawny. Those who had seen it clearly could not tell the others. They could only point and, and scream meaningless syllables. But Mark had recognized it. It was a tiger. For the first time that evening, everybody realized how many hiding places the room contained. The tiger might be under any of those tables. It might be in any of the deep bay windows behind the curtains. There was a screen across one corner of the room, too. It is to, not to be supposed that even now none of the company kept their heads. With loud appeals to the whole room or with urgent whispers to their immediate neighbors, they tried to stem the panic to arrange an orderly retreat for the room to indicate how the brute could be lured or scared into the open and shot. But the doom of gibberish frustrated all their efforts. They could not arrest the two movements which were going on. The majority had not seen Miss Hardcastle lock the door. They were pressing towards it to get out at all costs. They would fight. They would kill if they could, rather than not reach the door. A large minority, on the other hand, knew that the door was locked. There must be another door, the one used by the servants, the one whereby the tiger had got in. They were pressing to the opposite end of the room to find it. The whole center of the room is occupied by the beating of these two waves, a huge football scrum, as the struggle thickened, almost silent except for the sound of laboring breath, kicking or trampling feet, and meaningless muttering. Four or five of these combatants lurched heavily against the table, pulling off the cloth in their fall, and with it all, the fruit dishes, decanters, glasses, and plates. Out of that confusion, with a howl of terror, broke the tiger. It happened so quickly that Mark hardly took it in. He saw the hideous head, the cat's snarl of the mouth, the flaming eyes. He heard a shot, the last. Then the tiger disappeared again. Something fat and white and bloodied was down among the feet of the scrummers. Mark could not recognize it at first for the face, where he stood was upside down, and the grimaces disguised it until it was quite dead. Then he recognized Miss Hardcastle. Wither and Frost were no longer to be seen. There was a growling close at hand. Mark turned, thinking he had located the tiger. Then he caught out of the corner of his eye a glimpse of something smaller and grayer. He thought it was an Elastian. If so, the dog was mad. It ran along the table, its tail between its legs slavering. A woman, standing with her back to the table, turned, saw it, tried to scream. Next moment, went down as the creature leaped at her throat. It was a wolf. Aye, aye, squealed Philostrato and jumped on the table. Something else had darted between his feet. Mark saw it streak across the floor and enter the scrum and wake that mass of, and wake that mass of interlocked terror into a new and frantic convulsions. It was some kind of snake. Above the chaos of sounds which now awoke, there seemed to be a new animal in the room every minute. There came at last one sound in which those still capable of understanding could take comfort. Thud, thud, thud. The door was being battered from the outside. It was a huge folding door, a door by which a small locomotive could almost enter, for the room was made an imitation of Versailles. Already one or two of the panels were splintering. The noise maddened those who made that door their goal. It seemed also to madden the animals. They did not stop to eat what they killed, or not more than to take one lick of the blood. There were dead and dying bodies everywhere by now, for the scrum was by this time killing as many as the beasts, and always from all sides went up the voices trying to shout to those beyond the door, Quick, quick, hurry! But shouting only nonsense. 
louder and louder grew the noise of the door. As if in an invitation, a great gorilla leaped on the table where Jules had sat and began drumming on its chest. Then, with a roar, it jumped down into the crowd. At last the door gave. Both wings gave. The passage, framed to the doorway, was dark. Out of the darkness there came a gray, snaky something. It swayed in the air, then began methodically to break off the splintered wood on each side to make the doorway clear. Then Mark saw distinctly how it swooped down, curled itself around a man, steel, he thought, but everyone looked different now, and lifted him bodily high off the floor. After that, monstrous, improbable, the huge shape of the elephant thrust its way into the room, its eyes enigmatic, its ears standing stiffly out like the devil's wings on each side of its head. It stood for a second with steel writhing in the curl of its trunk, and then dashed him to the floor. It trampled him. After it raised head and trunk again and brayed horribly, then plunged straight forward into the room, trumpeting and trampling, continuously trampling like a girl treading grapes, heavily and soon wetly tramping in a patch of blood and bones of flesh, wine, fruit, and sodden tablecloth. Something more than danger darted from the sight into Mark's brain. The pride and insolent glory of the beast, the carelessness of its killings, seemed to crush his spirit even as its flat feet were crushing women and men. Here surely came the king of the world. Then everything went black and he knew no more. Section 2 when Mr. Bultitude had come to his senses, he found himself in a dark place full of unfamiliar smells. This did not very greatly surprise or trouble him. He was inured to mystery, to poke his head into any spare bedroom at St. Anne's, as he sometimes managed to do, was an adventure no less remarkable than that which had now befallen him. And the smells here were, on the whole, promising. He perceived that food was in the neighborhood, and, more exciting still, a female of his own species. There were a great many other animals about, too, apparently, but that was rather irrelevant than alarming. He decided to go and find both the female bear and the food. It was then he discovered that walls met him in three directions and bars on the fourth. He could not get out. This, combined with an inarticulate want for the human companionship to which he was accustomed, gradually plunged him into depression. Sorrow, such as only animals now, huge seas of disconsolate emotion, with not one little raft of reason to float on, drowned him fathoms deep. In his own fashion, he lifted up his voice and wept. And yet, not very far away from him, another and human captive was almost equally engulfed. Mr. Maggs, seated in a little white cell, chewed steadily on his great sorrow, as only a simple man can chew. An educated man in his circumstances would have found misery streaked with reflection, would have been thinking how this new idea of cure instead of punishment, so humane and seeming, had in fact deprived the criminal of all rights, and by taking away the name punishment made the thing infinite. But Mr. Baggs thought all the time simply of one thing, that this was the day he had counted on all through his sentence, that he had expected by this time to be having his tea at home with Ivy. She'd have got something tasty for him the first night, and that hadn't happened. He sat quite still. About once in every two minutes a single large tear trickled down his cheek. He wouldn't have minded so much if they let him have a packet of fags. It was Merlin who brought release to both. He had left the dining room as soon as the curse of Babel was well fixed upon the enemies. No one had seen him go, whither had once heard his voice calling loud and intolerably glad above the riot of nonsense, qui verbum dei contemptorant. 
es effetur etiam verbum hominis, meaning they that have despised the word of God, from them shall the word of man also be taken away. After that he did not see him again, nor the tramp either. Merlin had gone and spoiled his house. He had liberated beasts and men. The animals that were already maimed he killed with an instantaneous motion of the powers that were in him, swift and painless as the mild shafts of Artemis. To Mr. Baggs he had handed a written message. It ran as follows. Dearest Tom, I do hope you're well, and director here is one of the right sort, and he says to come as quick as you can to the banner at St. Anne's, and don't go through Edgestow, Tom, whatever you do, but come any way you can. I think someone had given you a lift. Everything is all right. No more now. Lots of love. Ever, you're ever your own, Ivy. The other prisoners had let go where they pleased. The tramp, finding Merlin's back turned on him for a second, and having noticed that the house seemed to be empty, made his escape first into the kitchens and thence, reinforced with all the edibles his pockets would hold, into the wide world. I have not been able to trace him further. The beasts, except for one donkey, disappeared about the same time as the tramp. The Merlin sent to the dining room, maddened with his voice and touch, but he retained Mr. Bultitude. The latter had recognized him at once as the same man whom he had sat beside in the blue room, less sweet and sticky than on that occasion but recognizably the same. Even without the brilliantine, there was that in Merlin, which exactly suited the bear, and at their meeting it made him all the cheer that a beast can make a man. He laid his hand on its head and whispered in its ear, and its dark mind was filled with excitement as though some long, forbidden, and forgotten pleasure were suddenly held out to it. Down the long, empty passage as a bellbury it padded beside him, Saliva dripped from its mouth, and it was beginning to growl. It was thinking of warm, salt tastes, of the pleasant resistances of bone, of things to crunch and lick and worry. Section 3 Mark felt himself shaken when the cold shock of water dashed at his face. With difficulty he sat up. The room was empty, except for the bodies of the distorted dead. The unmoved electric light glared down on hideous confusion, Food and filth, spoiled luxury and mangled men, each more hideous by reason of the other. It was the supposed Basque priest who had roused him. Serge Bissell, get up, wretched boy, he said, helping Mark to his feet. Mark rose. He had some cuts and bruises and his head ached, but he was substantially uninjured. The man held out to him wine in one of the great silver cups, but Mark turned away from it with a shudder. He looked with bewilderment on the face of the stranger and found that a letter was being put into his hand. Your wife awaits you, it ran, at the manor of St. Anne's of the Hill. Come quickly by road as best you can. Do not go near Edgestow. A. Deniston. He looked again at Merlin and thought his face terrible. But Merlin met his glance with a look of unsmiling authority, laid a hand on his shoulder and impelled him over all the tinkling and slippery havoc to the door. His fingers sent a prickly sensation through Mark's skin. He was led down to the cloakroom, made to fling on a coat and hat, neither were his own, and thence out under the stars, bitter cold, and two o'clock in the morning. Serious, bitter green, a few flakes of dry snow beginning to fall. He hesitated. The stranger stood back from him for a second, then, with his open hand, struck him on the back. Mark's bones ached at the memory as long as he lived. Next moment he found himself running as he had never run since boyhood, not in fear, but because his legs would not stop. 
When he became master of them again, he was half a mile from Belbury, and looking back, he saw a light in the sky. Section 4 Wither was not among those killed in the dining room. He naturally knew all the possible ways out of the room, and even before the coming of the tiger, he had slipped away. He understood what was happening, if not perfectly, yet better than anyone else. He saw that the Basque interpreter had done the whole thing, and by that, he knew also that powers more than human had come down to destroy Belbury, only one in the saddle of whose soul rode Mercury himself could thus have unmade language. And this again told him something worse. It meant that his own dark masters had been completely out in their calculations. They had talked of a barrier which made it impossible that powers from deep heaven could reach the surface of the earth, had assured him that nothing from outside could pass the moon's orbit. All their polity was based on the belief that Tellus was blockaded beyond the reach of such assistance and left as far as that went to their mercy and his. Therefore he knew that everything was lost. It is incredible how little this knowledge moved him. It could not because he had long ceased to believe in knowledge itself. What had been in his far-off youth a merely aesthetic repugnance to realities that were crude or vulgar had deepened and darkened year after year into a fixed refusal of everything that was in any degree other than himself. He had passed from Hegel into Hume, and thence through pragmatism, and thence through logical positivism, and out at last into the complete void. The indicative mood now corresponded to no thought that his mind could entertain. He had willed with his whole heart that there should be no reality and no truth, and now even the imminence of his own ruin could not wake him. The last scene of Dr. Faustus, where the man raves and implores on the edge of hell, is perhaps stage fire. The last moments before damnation are not often so dramatic. Often the man knows with perfect clarity that some still possible action of his own will could yet save him, but he cannot make this knowledge real to himself. Some tiny habitual sensuality, some resentment too trivial to waste on a blue bottle, the indulgence of some fatal lethargy seems to him at that moment more important than the choice between total joy and total destruction. With eyes wide open, seeing that the endless terror is just about to begin, and yet, for the moment, unable to feel terrified, he watches passively, not moving a finger for his own rescue, while the last links with joy and reason are severed, and drowsily sees the trap close upon his own soul. So full of sleep are they at the time when they leave the right way. Strake and Philostrata were also still alive. They met in one of the cold-lighted passages so far away from the dining room that the noise of the carnage was but a faint murmur. Philostrata was hurt, his right arm badly mauled. They did not speak. Both knew that the attempt would be useless, but walked on side by side. Philostrato was intending to get round to the garage by a back way. He thought that he might still be able to drive, in a fashion, at least as far as Sturk. As they rounded a corner, they both saw what they had often seen before, but had never expected to see again. The deputy director stooped, creaking, pacing, humming his tune. Philostrato did not want to go with him, but Wither, as if noticing his wounded condition, offered him an arm. Philostrato tried to decline it. Nonsense syllables came from his mouth. Wither took his arm firmly. Strake seized the other, the mauled arm. Squealing and shivering with pain, Philostrato accompanied them perforce. 
but worse awaited him. He was not an initiate. He knew nothing of the dark Eldils. He believed that his skill was really kept, had really kept Alcassan's brain alive. <coughs> Hence, even in his pain, he cried out with horror when he found the other two drawing him through the anteroom of the head and into the head's presence without pausing for any of those antiseptic preparations which he had always imposed on his colleagues. He tried vainly to tell them that one moment of such carelessness might undo all his work. But this time it was in the room itself that his conductors began undressing, and this time they took off all their clothes. They plucked off his too. When the right sleeve, stiff with blood, would not move, Wither got a knife from the anteroom and ripped it. In the end, the three men stood naked before the head, gaunt, big-boned strake, Philostrato, a wobbling mountain of fat, Wither an obscene senility. Then the high ridge of terror from which Philostrato was never again to descend was reached, for what he thought impossible began to happen. No one had read the dials, adjusted the pressures, or turned on the air and the artificial saliva, yet words came out of the dry, gaping mouth of the dead man's head. A door, it said. Philostrato felt his companions forcing his body forwards, then up again, then forwards and downwards. A second time he was compelled to bob up and down in rhythmic obeisance, while others, meanwhile, doing the same. Almost the last thing he saw on earth was the skinny folds on Wither's neck, shaking like the waddles of a turkey cock. Almost the last thing he heard was Wither beginning to chant, then Strake joined in, then horribly he found he was singing himself, Oroborinda. Oroborinda, Oroborinda, Baba-he. But not for long. Another, said the voice, give me another head. Philostrato knew at once why they were forcing him to a certain place on the wall. He had divided it all himself. In that wall that separated the head's room from the antechamber, there was a little shutter. When drawn back, it revealed a window in the wall and a sash to that window, which would fall quickly and heavily. But the sash was a knife. The little guillotine had not been meant to be used like this. They were going to murder him uselessly, unscientifically. If he were doing it to one of them, it would all have been different. Everything would have been prepared weeks beforehand, the temperature of both rooms exactly right, the blade sterilized, the attachments all ready to be made almost before the head was severed. He had even calculated what changes the terror of the victim would probably make in his blood pressure. The artificial bloodstream could be arranged accordingly, so to take over its work with the least possible breach of continuity. His last thought was that he had underestimated the terror. The two initiates, red from top to toe, gazed at each other, breathing heavily, almost before the fat dead legs and buttocks of the Italian had ceased quivering, they were driven to begin the ritual again, Ouroborinda, Ouroborinda, Ouroborindra, Babahi. The same thought struck both of them at one moment. It will ask for another. And Strake remembered that Wither had that knife. He wrenched himself free from the rhythm with a frightful effort. Claws seemed to be tearing his chest from inside. Wither saw what he meant to do. A strake bolted. Wither was already after him. A strake reached the anteroom, slipped in Philostrato's blood. Wither slashed repeatedly with his knife. He had not strength to cut through the neck, but he had killed the man. He stood up, pains gnawing at his old man's heart. Then he saw the Italian's head lying on the floor. It seemed to him good to pick it up and carry it into the inner room and show it to the original head. He did so. 
Then he realized that something was moving in the anteroom. Could it be that they had not shut the outer door? He, he could not remember. They had come in, forcing Philostrato along between them. It was possible. Everything had been so abnormal. He put down his burden, carefully, almost courteously, even now, and stepped towards the door between the two rooms. Next moment he drew back. A huge bear, rising to its hind legs as he came in sight of it, had met him in the doorway, its mouth open, its eyes flaming, its forepaws spread out as if for an embrace. Was this what Strake had become? He knew, even now he could not attend to it, that he was on the very frontier of a world where such things could happen. Five. No one at Belbury that night had been cooler than Feverstone. He was neither an initiate like Wither nor a dupe like Philostrato. He knew about the back robes, but wasn't the sort of thing he was interested in. He knew that the Belbury scheme might not work, but he knew that if it didn't, he would get out in time. He had a dozen lines of retreat that kept open. He had also a perfectly clear conscience and had played no tricks with his mind. He had never slandered another man except to get his job, never cheated except because he wanted money, never really disliked people unless they bored him. He saw at the very early stage that something was going wrong. One had to guess how far wrong. Was this the end of Belbury? If so, he must get back to Edstow and work up the position he had already prepared for himself as the protector of the university against the NICE. On the other hand, if there were any chance of figuring as the man who had saved Belbury at a moment of crisis, that would be definitely the better line. He would wait as long as it was safe, and he waited a long time. He found a hatch through which hot dishes were passed from the kitchen passage into the dining room. He got through it and watched the scene. His nerves were excellent, and he thought he could pull or bolt the shoulder, shutter in time if any dangerous animal made for the hatch. He stood there during the whole massacre, his eyes bright, something like a smile on his face, smoking endless cigarettes and drumming with his hard fingers on the sill of the hatch. When it was all over, he said to himself, Well, I'm damned. It had certainly been a most extraordinary show. The beasts had all streaked away somewhere. He knew there was a chance of meeting one or two of them in the passages, but he'd have to risk that. Danger, in moderation, acted on him like a tonic. He worked his way to the back of the house and into the garage. It looked as if he must go to Edgestow at once. He could not find his car in the garage. Indeed, there were far fewer cars than he had expected. Apparently, several other people had the idea of getting away while the going was good and his own car had been stolen. He felt no resentment and set about finding another of the same make. It took him a longish time, and when he had found one, he had considerable difficulty in starting her up. The night was cold, going to snow, he thought. He scowled for the first time that night. He hated snow. It was after two o'clock when he got going. <coughs> Just before he started, he had the odd impression that someone had got in the back of the car behind him. Who's that? he asked sharply. He decided to get out and see. But to his surprise, his body did not obey this decision. Instead, it drove the car out of the garage and round to the front and out into the road. The snow was definitely falling now. He found he could not turn his head and could not stop driving. He was going ridiculously fast, too, in this damn snow. He had no choice. He had often heard of cars being driven from the back seat, but now it seemed to be really happening. Then, to his dismay, he found he had left the road. The car, still at a reckless speed, was bumping and leaping along what was called Gypsy Lane, or, by the educated, Wayland Street, the old Roman road from Belbury to Edgetoe, all grass and ruts.
Here, what the devil am I doing, thought Feverstone. Am I tight? I'll break my neck at this game if I don't look out. But on the car went, as if driven by one who regarded this track as an excellent road and the obvious route to Edgestow. Six. Frost had left the dining room a few minutes after Wither. He did not know where he was going or what he was about to do. For many years, he had theoretically believed that all which appears in the mind as motive or intention is merely a byproduct of what the body is doing. But for the last year or so, since he had been initiated, he had begun to taste as fact what he had long held as theory. Increasingly, his actions had been without motive. He did this and that, he said thus and thus, and did not know why. His mind was a mere spectator. He could not understand why that spectator should exist at all. He resented its existence, even while assuring himself that resentment also was merely a chemical phenomenon. The nearest thing to a human passion which still existed in him was a sort of cold fury against all who believed in the mind. There was no tolerating such an illusion. There were not, and must not be, such things as men. But never, until this evening, had he been quite so vividly aware that the body and its movements were the only reality, that the self which seemed to watch the body leaving the dining room and setting out for the chamber of the head was a non-entity. How infuriating that the body should have power thus to project a phantom self. Thus Frost, whose existence Frost denied, watched his body go into the anteroom, watched it pull up sharply at the sight of a naked and bloody corpse. The chemical reaction called shock occurred. Frost stopped, turned the body over, and recognized Strake. A moment later, his flashing pince-nez and pointed beard looked into the room of the head, of its, the head itself. He hardly noticed that Wither and Philostrato lay there dead. His attention was fixed by something more serious. The bracket where the head ought to have been was empty. The metal ring twisted, the rubber tubes tangled and broken. Then he noticed a head on the floor, stooped and examined it. It was Philostrato's. Of Alcassan's head he found no trace, unless some mess of broken bones beside Philostrato's were it. Still not asking what he would do or why, Frost went to the garage. The whole place was silent and empty. The snow was thick on the ground by this. He came up with as many petrol tins as he could carry. He piled all the inflammables he could think of together in the objective room. Then he locked himself in by locking the outer door of the anteroom. Whatever it was that dictated his actions then compelled him to push the key into the speaking tube which communicated with the passage. Then he pushed it in as far as in, in as his fingers could reach. He took a pencil from his pocket and pushed with that. Presently he heard the clink of the key falling on the passage floor outside. That tiresome illusion, his consciousness, was screaming into protest. His body, even had he wished, had no power to attend to those screams. Like the clockwork figure he had chosen to be, his stiff body, not terribly cold, walked back into the objective room, poured out the petrol, and threw a lighted match into the pile. Not till then did his controllers allow him to suspect that death itself might not, after all, cure the illusion of being a soul. Nay, might prove the entry into a world where that illusion raged infinite and unchecked. <coughs> Escape for the soul, if not for the body, was offered him. He became able to know, and simultaneously refused that knowledge, that he had been wrong from the beginning, that souls and personal responsibility existed. He half saw, he wholly hated, 
The physical torture of the burning was not fiercer than his hatred of that. With one supreme effort, he flung himself back into his illusion. In that attitude, eternity overtook him as sunrise in old tales overtakes and turns them into unchangeable stone. The end of the reading. Tonight. Tonight. So. Exciting.